And welcome to Last Call, everybody. I am Brian Sullivan. Good evening here. Good afternoon out west. First up tonight, the fast-paced regional banking crisis keeps going. This despite nearly historic measures by the Biden administration to calm people with money in those banks and shareholders. Well, it didn't work, at least for today. A number of mid-sized banks lost even more investor money. First Republic crashing another 60%. Western Alliance losing nearly half. Others got whacked as well. Remember, these are not small banks, some hometown thing with a couple of branches. These are some of the largest regional banks in America, and they are taking down a lot more money. A major bank ETF fell the most since the pandemic first hit, down 12% today. And the fear spreading to firms other than just banks. Charles Schwab smoked investors again, falling nearly 12%. The CEO trying to reassure investors, saying they have access to, quote, significant liquidity. The market either didn't care or disagreed. In the meantime, here's what else you need to know at this hour. Silicon Valley Bank, once one of the 20 biggest banks in America, is being sold off in parts, or at least they are trying to. So far, no buyers. Meantime, the Federal Reserve held a closed-door meeting earlier today looking to make it easier for banks to access taxpayer money held by the Fed, and that is not all. Fed Chair Jay Powell increasingly under fire for calling inflation transitory, remember that, and then mismanaging rates, saying that the events around Silicon Valley Bank demand a, quote, thorough, transparent, and swift review by the Federal Reserve. Just a reminder that it is the Federal Reserve's San Francisco office that was responsible for overseeing Silicon Valley Bank. That is the regulator. And while the feds may have been asleep at the switch, Bank executives were busy selling stock. Over the past few months, executives at many of these same banks, either Silicon Valley or others, were selling millions of dollars in stock. And now shareholders in these companies are left either way down or completely wiped out in the case of Silicon Valley Bank and likely New York Signature Bank, which was closed by state regulators yesterday. Oh, and here is something that you will only hear here on Last Call. Executives at First Republic Bank, whose shares have obliterated shareholders the last few years or last few weeks, have sold more than 10 million in stock since January 1st. Ten million dollars sold by just a couple of insiders, according to our friends at Verity Platforms. Some of that may be in pre-planned stock sales. Everybody does it. But either way, those execs had their personal value go up while regular old shareholders went down, way down. If there is any somewhat decent news in this mess, let's call this the sully side up segment. It didn't hit your money overall. Not that hard anyway. Stocks actually held up okay. NASDAQ rose a half a percent. Dow and S&P both fell fractionally. What about tomorrow? That's today. Futures, let's get a check on them. Well, they are currently mildly higher up by about three-tenths of one percent. So right now, this, this regional banking Infection, for lack of a better term, has not completely infected the macro market. All right, so that is your money. And obviously, this whole thing is fast-moving, it's complex, it's oftentimes confusing. I mean, even we, I'm not afraid to admit, I am learning new things by the hour. But what I do know is that there are many, many angles to the story, from the bank itself to the federal government, bailout slash rescue, whatever you want to call it, to the employees, and even to the Fed itself. And we've got a great panel to break it all down for you. Let's bring in Nick Timoros of the Wall Street Journal, 
Lydia Moynihan of the New York Post, Deirdre Bosa out in San Francisco, and CBC producer Yasmin Koram, who is at one of SVB's branches in Silicon Valley. Uh, I want to go ahead, Deirdre Bosa, and begin with you because the one question that I've had that maybe I don't want to put you on the spot, you may not have the answer to this as well, but nobody seems to be talking about the 8,500 employees of Silicon Valley Bank, whether it's from the lowest level person, not the top five or 10 executives. 99% of employees had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Do they have jobs today, tomorrow, what? Well, maybe aside from the risk management team, but yes, um, we're hearing that these employees are going to stay on with this transition. Remember that they got their bonuses right before all of this tumbled, all of this happened. But there's fresh reporting that they are going to stay on. They're going to be paid a little bit extra by the FDIC to make sure that this is an orderly process. But, you know, it's a tough spot for them. Where do they go from here? We know that there's concern about some of the other banks. So um, they're likely all going to have to find new jobs, Brian. Yeah, I... Nobody's been focused on the employees. I'm, I'm talking about literally some of the lowest level people there. They had nothing to do with any of this, and they're scared yeah, for their jobs right. and their ability to pay their mortgages and put food on the table. Uh, Lydia Moynihan, to you. Okay, uh, I hate arguing over semantics. I find it just repetitive. However, however, there was a lot of arguing last night in the special that we did about what to call this. Nobody wants to call it a bailout politically, right? I called it a, a rescue or a or a backstopping, is this a bailout? Well, that is a trillion dollar question that no one wants to answer, including me. I mean, I think if you look at what's happening, this is money from the FDIC that banks have paid. So that's where we are right now. Unlike 2008, we did not bail out equity or bondholders. I do want to know, you know, this morning when Biden was addressing this issue, a lot of people were sort of shocked by uh how aggressive he was in criticizing not just the management, but everyone involved in this bank. And you make a great point that this affects everyone from the janitor all the way up. And there were a lot of pension funds and a lot of mom and pops who had retirement accounts that are going to be massively impacted by this. Uh, Vanguard owned about 11 percent of the company. So there are all sorts of ramifications. But Lydia, but Lydia, and, but he, and here's the thing, depending on sort of what, where you come in on this is who you're going to pick. Yet, and I want to be clear, shareholders and bondholders, they're wiped out. Silicon Valley Bank is gone. The stock is gone. So nobody's rescuing stockholders. But you could, you could choose your narrative, could you not? You could say, yeah, the pension funds and employees are getting helped out. But let's be clear. There are some really rich tech bros who are going to get to keep their jet because of this. That's where a lot of the frustration, I think, is coming in because – A lot of those VCs were the same ones in 2008 who were criticizing the government for bailing out Wall Street. And a lot of these people created this issue, right? They were the ones who Wednesday, Thursday, Friday were telling everyone, pull out your money. They created this bank run when there didn't necessarily need to be this problem. And then over the weekend, you saw them suddenly demanding and trying to call in favors in D.C. And I think it's tricky because this was probably the right move. We need to make sure that we have proper financial infrastructure. We need to make sure that people feel comfortable putting money in the bank. But it kind of does feel like a sense of moral hazard. I mean, I know, obviously, there's a lot more to it than this, but 98% of the people uh, with, or rather, 98% of the deposits Mm -hmm. at Silicon Valley Bank were uninsured. And you kind of wonder, okay, presumably there were a few people who had millions, and they just must have assumed that the government was going to bail them out. 
Well, they are getting the bailout, a backstop, the rescue, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Nick, I want to come to you, but I want to do this first. We had big bond investor Jeff Gunlock today. He was earlier on CNBC, and he gave his prediction about what the Federal Reserve is going to do at next week's meeting. I just think to save kind of the, the program and their credibility, they'll probably raise rates 25 basis points. I, I would think that that would be the last, in, the last increase. So even though, Nick, Jeff Gunlock sees another round of tightening, I don't think he really believes that is the right move. And your reporting suggests that the Federal Reserve may not tighten. Is it possible we get an, hard to believe I'm saying this, a cut? Well, Brian, uh, it's really early. I mean, we have eight more days until this meeting, and that could feel like a year in terms of the events that we'll have between now and then. So it's really hard to predict where things are going to be next Tuesday or Wednesday and what the Fed's going to do. But, uh, you know, there had been this debate about where is the sufficiently restrictive interest rate. And last week, the view was maybe it's 6%. Maybe we're not there yet. Maybe we have a lot more to do. And I think now you see more people saying, well, gee, maybe the, the people who were talking about the lags of policy were right. I compare it to, you know, Brian, when you try to get ketchup out of the glass bottle, and you keep hitting the bottle, maybe you use your knife to get the ketchup out, nothing comes out until everything comes out all at once. And when it comes to getting some tightening of financial conditions, that could be what you see right now. And if that is what's happening, I think it'll make next week's decision a lot more difficult for the Fed. It's also not just comes out at once. Also, uh, it, it can be messy. And let's be honest, ketchup is gross anyway. Nick, uh, do, does the Federal Reserve sort of not ignore, but does it downplay then things like the CPI and other inflation data? Does this, this regional bank mess influence its thinking at all? Yes, I think, you know, to the extent that this does not get completely resolved, which as you know, your opening noted, it doesn't seem likely now, uh, I think it makes the whole data dependence a little bit more difficult because you're now looking at data from a period before you had this really rapid tightening in financial conditions. And the Fed has been saying that that is what they're trying to achieve here is the tightening in financial conditions. They just didn't want to see it happen all at once. So of course, they have to take into consideration the tightening that we're seeing right now. I mean, there's a chance here that SVB does a lot more of the tightening that the Fed thought we were going to need to see uh, to get interest rates to whatever that sufficiently restricted level was. Interesting. This is kind of doing the work for the Fed. All right, let's move on to more of the human angle. Yasmin, you spoke with a business owner who has been waiting outside SVB since 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sure you spoke with others as well, just doing yeoman's work, and we appreciate it. What did they all tell you? Yeah, we've been talking to as many people as we can out here. We got here before the bank opened, and that founder was here at 2 in the morning in the pitch black. He is feeling a sense of relief, but there's a lot of questions over how he will get the rest of his money. This is what he told us. We feel there are some places where we'd have more certainty over the money, and we'd like it to get there as soon as possible. I think it's going to take uh, a little while before things really uh, you know, get to a point where everyone has clarity in what's going on. Most of the founders, CEOs and customers we've been talking to say their number one concern over the weekend was meeting payroll. It sounds like a lot of them have a hold on that. The FDIC tells me they talk to and process a couple hundred customers at this branch alone behind me. They have about 12 branches in the Bay 
area. Now, the bank is now closed. Uh, a lot of people were, were also turned away and told to come back tomorrow, Brian. They were also told that the website will be less glitchy tomorrow and that they will hopefully be able to wire their funds out. Yeah, Deirdre, and going, going back to the, the Silicon Valley Bank specifically story, what we just talked about as well, and there's going to be people that say, listen, they, they sort of did the bailout because no doubt, listen, California, a lot of money, no doubt probably a lot of Democratic donors among these people that now are going to feel a little more comfortable. Whatever your political spectrum, nobody I've talked to has suggested there won't be some negative hit to the startup culture. Even yeah. though there's this backstop, it was already slowing down well before this and that there will be some knock on effect. How large? We just don't know. Exactly. And that's where all the uncertainty comes from. I mean, there was so much relief over the last 24 hours, but in a way it's a little bit short lived, especially for startups that are burning a lot of cash because they need to look to their next funding round or they need to open up bank accounts. And that can be harder in this macroeconomic backdrop that you've already been talking about. They're also facing that tighter financing landscape. So Silicon Valley, I know we've talked about this a lot, Brian, but it really occupied such a unique spot a flywheel in a way mm -hmm. in tech. I mean, they offered products and services. They were more flexible than some of the bigger banks. So with it gone, a lot of the tech community is asking startups and investors, where do they turn now? How do you get funding for some of the most innovative companies? Because some of the biggest disruptors, of course, they don't earn money for some time and they need a bank to take a chance on them. And that's what Silicon Valley did. A lot of this venture debt financing, they did the stuff that I've never talked about. I didn't even know existed, but was so critical. Yeah. Now we'll see if anybody fills the hole. Deirdre, Lydia, Nick, Yasmin, thank you all. All right, up next, what the head of one of America's biggest brokerage has to say about whether your money is safe tonight. How about that fancy new graphic? It is time now to bring back a former staple of my old morning show, the RBI, the most random but interesting thing you may hear all day, CNBC style, of course. And this is really random but interesting. All right. All this bank meltdown is basically what happened 15 years to the day around the previous bank melt. Get this. On March 12th, 2008, the then CEO of Bear Stearns said this. The markets have certainly gotten worse, uh, but our liquidity position is, has not changed at all. Um, our balance sheet has not weakened at all. Now, two days later, J.P. Morgan had to give Bayer an emergency investment. And then two days after that, March 16, 2008, Bayer Stearns was bought for two bucks a share. It was a $60 stock just a few days earlier. That was 15 years ago, basically to the day. I mean, right now. Two lessons here. March shall we say, has not been kind to bank or their investors. And more importantly, when it comes to banks, things tend to move fast, really fast. And like I said on last night's special, when it comes to banks and their problems, there usually is more than just one cockroach under the rug. I think we found that out today, like we found it out 15 years ago today. Random, hopefully, interesting. All right, as we said earlier, the pain has not just been limited to pure banks. Shares of massive brokerage firm Charles Schwab also getting rocked, down another 12% today. Now the company is racing to reassure clients and investors. Seema Modi is here now with more. Seema. 
Brian, today Charles Schwab CFO Peter Crawford tried to instill confidence in investors, saying, quote, we have access to significant liquidity, including an estimated $100 billion of cash flow from cash on hand, portfolio-related cash flows, and net new assets. Crawford goes on to say Schwab is well positioned to navigate the current environment, but it really wasn't enough to stem the decline in the stock. While banks are backstopped by the FDIC, worth noting that customers with money in brokerages are protected by the Securities Investor Protection Corp, also known as SIPCA. It works alongside the SEC and FINRA and steps in when broker dealers are unable to meet obligations to customers. Its protection is capped, though, at $500,000, which includes $250,000 limit for cash. So, for example, if you have $500,000 in cash and another $600,000 tied in stocks and securities at a brokerage like Schroll Schwab, you'd receive $250,000 in cash and securities valued at $250,000. So you would then file a claim for the remaining amount. If you're married and also have a joint account, your total insured amount does go up to $1 million, Brian. Still, financial experts we spoke to today say it's best to stay, stay diversified. Don't put all your money in a bank or put it all in a brokerage. That seems to be the big piece of advice. Yeah, I mean, I think, Seema, it's great stuff. And now everybody's kind of revisiting these SIPC, FDIC, yep. you know. So the big question is, is my money truly safe, I guess? Very quickly, before we go to our guest, I want to ask you, um, Schwab, trying to reassure people may have worked. I don't know. The stock fell 12%. Anything else you could tell us on, on why this brokerage house is getting whacked like this? It seems to just be a part of this broader sell-off that we're seeing in financials, Brian, as investors try to evaluate the, the, the different companies that could be vulnerable to this volatility, to bonds. Uh, it's hard to say if there's something specific here related to Charles Schwab, but as you said, and, and as, as we shared, the CFO really trying to instill confidence, similar to what First Republic CEO tried to do earlier today as well. All right, Seema Modi, good stuff there. Appreciate it, Seema. All right, so who better to ask about all this than Interactive Brokers founder and chairman Thomas Petterfee. He joins us now. Thomas, it's good to have you back on. You've got, a, I think, 50-some billion in cash, and who knows how much more you've got in client funds. We have Is the money, money safe? Is the money safe? Interactive Brokers has $100 billion in cash. A hundred. Wow, I cut a you hundred. off by half. Is it safe? $40 billion of that is in margin loans. $40 billion of that is in short-term treasuries that all come due before treasuries and treasury repos that all come due before May, before the end of May. And $20 billion is in large banks. So our business model is that we pay interest on our clients' uninvested cash half a percent under the Fed fund rates. So we currently pay 4.08%. Mm. When we lend money on margin, we charge half a percent over the Fed fund rates. So we charge 5.08% for larger loans. So given this business model, we were not able and didn't want to invest money on the long term like other institutions did because say the Fed fund rate would spike up to 8%, we would have to pay 7.5% and we couldn't take that loss, right? Of of having money invested long-term at 2% and having to pay 7.5%. Or even today, having money invested at 2% and having to pay 
4.08, and pretty soon, if the Fed raises another quarter, it's going to be 4.33. Th- so, Thomas, can I can I jump in? I don't want to run out yes. of time on this. A lot of numbers there. Uh, is that where you think, and I got your point, is that where you think Silicon Valley Bank went really wrong and screwed their shareholders? And is that they got greedy? And where they got greedy is they took money in at basically 0%. They could have also bought short-term instruments, made a lot less money, but 100% safe, matched short to short. Instead, they matched short to long because they wanted a little more yield. Guess what? When the deposits came out, they were really offside. Did they just get stupid greedy? You're absolutely correct, but please don't scare people because the the Fed loan at at par against these long-term securities that only worth maybe 80 cents at a dollar, the Fed is going to lend against them 100 cents at a dollar for a year. So all these institutions have the ability for a year to work out of this situation that they are in. Well, I actually brought you on for the opposite. I want to, I want you to sort of calm people down if we can. And with, with that in mind, with that in mind, we had uh, Peter Thiel, obviously, uh, last week, suggest Thomas, he basically told people, according to right. reports, take your money out of Silicon Valley Bank. Now, you could argue he was right, or you could argue he, he was the he, gasoline. He, he, he caused himself to be right. Should he yeah, have said that? He, 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 he was right, but... At that time, we didn't have this Fed facility yet, right? So now with this Fed facility, all banks can make good to their depositors. However, on the long run, they are going to lose money between, the say, the, the money where they lent out is 2%, and they will have to pay about 5% for the Fed loan. So that 3%, they are going to lose every day. And that is many of them will eventually get into some trouble because their equity will be hit very gradually mm. and they will come into liquidity ratio issues. Thomas but that's going to happen very slowly. T- so Thomas there is Petter- no need to panic. Yeah. OK, good, good words. And by the way, your stock is down a little bit, but not much relatively. So uh, investors our stock should not be down because we're doing very well. Yeah, well, comparatively, you are doing very well as well. Thomas Petterfee, Interactive Brokers, stay calm. Everything's going to be all right. Thomas, thank you. All right, we got some breaking news on Uber and Lyft. Let's go back to Deirdre for that. Deirdre, what's going on? Hey, Brian, a victory for Uber, Lyft, and other gig economies here in California. A court ruling handed down just moments ago upholds the status quo when it comes to gig economy workers. So drivers of Uber and Lyft, DoorDash, they will remain independent contractors, not full-time employees, which would entitle them to certain benefits. Now, this could have broader implications because gig economy companies are fighting this battle in other states. So this ruling could boost their efforts to maintain this model, which they have fought tooth and nail for. In a statement, Tony West, Uber's chief legal officer, says today's ruling is a victory for app-based workers and the millions of Californians who voted for Prop 22. Prop 22, Brian, I don't know if it rings a bell, but it was hotly contested a few years ago. It went into effect in November of 2020. It was the voter-approved gig economy law. Um, and Uber and Lyft shares, I think you just showed them, popping in the yeah. after hours on this news because if it wasn't upheld, it would have raised their costs enormously. I think we're going to have to start doing this show from California, Deirdre, because all the news that everybody cares about right now is California. This, we've got Silicon Valley Bank on the, on the brain. Brian. This is a big deal. This ruling, there were, there were people, not just you know screaming people on Twitter, 
There were real people who were suggesting that whatever you think of it personally, this could really doom Uber and Lyft's business in a certain way. This is a huge ruling, maybe not for the drivers, I know, but for the companies, it's got to be. A few, a few years ago, Brian, when they were discussing this, Uber and Lyft actually said that they would pull out of the state of California if the law changed to require them to treat their drivers as employees. So it is a very, very big deal. But perhaps more importantly, they are fighting this battle, as I said, in other states. In the U.S., Uber is fighting this battle internationally. So the fact that this ruling upholds that contractor model, that has important implications for other states that are considering the same thing. Yeah, and we'll probably show those stocks again. I got to imagine they're going to pop. I think they were up a couple percent after hours, but I, it's hard not to see how this is not viewed as good news. Deirdre Bosa, I can't wait to see what you got for us the next block. Deirdre, thank you. All right, let's get a check on futures. They are higher right now. Again, th- very thinly traded, but with everything going on, we got to show it to you. They're up about two-tenths of 1%. All right on deck. Will the big bailout, backstop, rescue, whatever you want to call it, actually work? Plus, a story you have to hear, and you still probably won't believe it, how the guy for whom the banking regulation bill was named has been secretly trying to ease the rules now that he's on the board of a bank that just failed. Are you following this? It's next. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Just a reminder, by the way, we have an open invitation for any bank CEO wants to come on. Depositors and investors could probably use a word from you. Now, we have called or emailed the CEOs of these companies, First Republic, Charles Schwab, PacWest, and Western Alliance. We either have not heard back or got a polite no. We get it. You're busy. You got bigger things to do. But over time, your investors need to hear from you, and we will make time for you. Those are the CEOs. Let's put them back on screen if we can. Open invitation to any of those four. We've reached out. You know where to find us. We're like in a TV studio in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. All right, in the meantime, a big debate is heating up further this evening. Is the government's bank rescue slash bailout, whatever you want to call it, setting up a dangerous precedent? Some say healthy banks are now subsidizing the mismanagement of Silicon Valley Bank and others, while others disagree, like Altimeter Capital CEO Brad Gerstner. Here's here's what he said on the halftime report earlier today. This is not a bailout for shareholders. This is not a bailout for CEOs. Their reputations are going to be destroyed. Their savings are going to vanish. It's not, you know, if you were a shareholder of one of these banks, which you may have thought was safe, you found out that it's not. All right. So so which is it? Right. I mean, a lot of it depends on what you're watching or reading, I guess. But let's bring in our panel. CNBC contributor and Empire Financial senior editor Herb Greenberg and Adam Singolda. He is founder and CEO of Tabula. Thank you both for joining the last call, Herb. What do you think here? First off, what do you do you use the B word bailout here? And do you think there that this was the right thing to do? No, it's not a bailout because you're not there's no government bailout, so to speak, because it's not obviously taxpayer funded, though it is ultimately funded by us somehow through bank fees. I get that. Um, I think it's a great idea. We got this resolved. I think had we not got it resolved somehow um, today would have been horrific. And I think given the nature of the way information spreads, given the internet, you know, this is the first quote social media uh, financial bank, you know, financial failure. Um, I think you would have had panic. So I think yeah. what happened had to happen, and otherwise the dominoes that would have fallen 
I don't think we would have wanted to see that. Yeah, and you know, Adam, we're not playing Wordle here. I, I, does, it, does it really matter what we call it? What do you think of it, whatever it is? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, you know, with Herb that it had to happen. I personally don't care so much about, you know, the definition of what happened. And, and I heard the debate you had before. To me, and, you know, I take a step back. I have a lot of empathy. I mean, it, it almost feels biblical, you know, these times we live in, you know, from 2020, the pandemic to the war in Europe, to the recession, inflation, supply chain. Now this, you know, I feel like our kids will ask us, what was it like to live in 2023? But I take a step back. I have a lot of empathy for you know, founders that over the last few days felt, you know, the stress, the anxiety. We want startups to succeed in America. We want this to be startup nation. There's a reason why Shark Tank is successful here. So to me, what's what I'm happy about is that uh, the government contained the situation. Uh, you know, people got their money, uh, will get their money back. Um, and it will not be we're not going to have more run ups, run ups on other banks. You know, Herb, we go back. You want to let's go back in time, my old friend, because you the book, The Match King, written by your, your friend, uh, talks about a Ponzi scheme. I think it was in the 1920s. This guy became the richest guy in the world. It's a true story. My recruiter. That's it. Thank mm -hmm. you. Founded and funded Greta Garbo. Eventually, you know, took his own life because he got found out. My point is that, okay, we have this, the financial crisis. Go back to the mid-80s, continental Illinois, the SNL crisis. There's three or four. It seems like every 15 to 20 years, no matter what regulations are put into place, this kind of nonsense happens. Because human beings will be human beings. Greedy. Greed will be greed. That's it. Always. Always. And, and plus, plus confidence. In this case, I think you go back to something that you talk about just the sheer overconfidence and the hubris. Because remember, this became this was a huge community. And this bank was central to everything. You know, I covered this bank back, you know, decades ago and watched its ups and downs and the controversies over the years. But in the end, you know, it clearly was central to startups and, uh, and the venture community. But there's one really interesting question here when we talk about greed and everything else. Where were the VCs? Why haven't we heard from the VCs that were so close to this bank? Why didn't they put up some money? I'm just curious about that because that's yeah, one thing have, we haven't heard from is the large This is your large the startup culture. Do you have an answer for that? Like, what yeah. do you... I want to ask Herb, actually, you know, to me, about why is the VCs the, the focal point for this discussion? I'm curious, you know, about what do you think about how is this going to affect innovation? You know, will will we see startups starting well, the way at pace? We, we know we've seen over the last few years and how important. Remember, I started Taboola 15 years ago. I've raised $160,000 to start a business that generates, you know, about two and a half billion dollars of run right now. So. How's it going to look now on the other side of it with venture debt maybe going away, cash being too expensive? To me, that's the main question, not the VCs, the future innovation. Well, well, two things. One, on the VCs, it's just that, you know, the bank was there for their clients early on. Where were they? But that's a separate issue. You're raising a really great point. And the information had a really good piece on this just that was published a little bit ago on who will fill that gap. Because this, this bank, like it or not, was special in that regard. And so the question is, will anyone, can anyone, and should anyone fill the gap? And as I start talking around to people, you know, the big banks are already trying to, but not quite. So that really gets down to the issue. Of, well, but by the way, over time, we've got the cycle. I'm convinced someone will figure out a way, but it'll take time. Adam, you agree <laughs> with that? Because I, I would agree. I mean, Herb and I have been doing this longer than we care to think about. Uh, Herb a lot longer than me, by the way. I just want to point that out. 
uh, which is that if there's money to be made, somebody's going to fill that hole. Is there anything that SVB did in plain English to our audience that's learning about it that is irreplaceable, at least, you know, maybe not right now, but soon? I mean, I think they've done a really good job, you know, building a vehicle that was accessible to startups in different stages and making it attractive. I think the, the what what I'm not sure is replaceable in the short term um, is how well, what's the culture evolution that is going to happen now that money is so expensive and how much will companies, you know, put focus on free cash flow um, and the whole, just the whole way management in different companies manage their companies yeah. and what metrics they're looking at. To me, the cultural exercise we're going to go through, so that is the cycle that we're going back to. There's a cleanse, you know, a cultural cleanse that I think is taking place now and companies will have to kind of reboot the way they think about their business and how they execute. You, I'm going to change topics, Herbert. Hold on, Herb. I got to ask you okay. this because this, I'm going to go right where you live, my man, which is analysts, okay? Because I was watching Jim ahead of this, and he noted that Saw 22 that. of 23 sell-side analysts, the, the stock analysts that come on CNBC all the time, either had a buy or a hold on Silicon <laughs> Valley Bank. Okay, these are some, these are MBAs it, from Duke and Dartmouth and NYU. How did 22, uh, I think the analysts are getting a free pass here. We'll be going after everybody. Remember but Squawk Box, remember in, the, remember in the old days when Squawk Box would have the March of the Penguins and they'd all go, you know, flowing down into, it was the old Penguin, uh, one yes. following the other. This is what's really interesting. If you go back, and I know you guys have talked about this a little today, if you go back and start going back, whether it was Raging Capital shorting the stock and warning about it on Twitter in January, if you go back to the Wall Street Journal story that John Weil wrote back in November, if you go back and see, I think it was called, um, oh, there's another there's another uh, firm that was shorting the stock back before the Wall Street Journal piece. There, were in, there was information in the marketplace from the financials, if anyone cared to read them about what was going on with the bonds plus interest rates. So the question with those analysts, each one who should probably be fired is, why weren't you there? Now, if you look, you'll see the company came back and said, there was a great quote that John Weil had back in November, where the company said, oh, this is not a problem. Well, what do you expect them to say? We yeah. got a problem here? No, yeah. they thought they could get out of it, and they and, couldn't. And, and you're referring to Raging Capital Bill, who I, who I know personally had a hell of a trade, by the way, and he put on Twitter two months ago. He didn't cause this, but he was out there, and he nailed it, and San Francisco Fed didn't know anything about it, and they didn't have a chief risk officer, and the Wall Street analyst community didn't get it as well. So, uh, Herb and Adam, good because discussion. Because people got compliant. Yes, they got very complacent. Thank complacent, you. complacent, complacent. That's it. This show was actually taped yesterday. That's how lazy we are. Herb and Adam, thank you very much. Kidding. All right, up next, if you're looking at Twitter's trending topics tonight, he said, and wondering why Barney Frank is on there. Yes, this is the Frank in the Dodd-Frank financial protection bill. Former congressman, it's because of this Wall Street Journal article this evening, which alleges that Barney Frank has spent the past couple of years earning more than $2 million on the board of the now-seized Signature Bank, pushing to weaken some of the very laws that he put into place. Joining us now in this developing story is the Wall Street Journal's Andrew Ackerman, who contributed to this piece. I mean, Andrew, uh, everybody's kind of going back on Twitter because that's what people do. It's his fault. It's, there. it's Trump. It's Biden. It's, whatever team you're on, they just automatically blame the other side. This is the congressman whose name is on the legislation, retires, works for a bank, makes a couple million bucks. What exactly was he trying to change here? I think he I think he did testify in support of the uh, 
uh, regulatory rollback. But I think the argument he made was that the 50 billion figure, there's a threshold they had for heightened, what's called heightened prudential standards. So uh, Dodd-Frank says, hey, if you're above 50 billion, you're gonna be subject to all these new uh, tougher rules. He just said, hey, that 50 billion, it's totally arbitrary, it could be higher. Yeah, fair enough. And this is kind of where people are going back. They're going after the former president. But you got to admit, Andrew, it's a bad look. I mean, when it's 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 not like he was a random congressman. It's the Dodd-Frank Consumer Financial Protection Bill. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think this whole episode has showed that the revolving door is is very much on display. You've got Barney Frank on the board of one of the failed banks, Mary Miller, who was the Treasury uh, senior Treasury official, also a Baltimore mayoral candidate. She's on the board of SVB. The you know, obviously the 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 head of um, SVB, Greg Becker. He was on the board of the San Francisco Fed, which looks totally asleep. Um, we're not really sure what their examiners were doing. Um, so you you know you have people kind of in government going into private sector kind of like or or the opposite. Um, it like the whole thing kind of looks a little rough. Yeah, and and by the way, you wonder what the San Francisco Fed was doing. I know what they weren't doing, which is talking to the chief risk officer, and I only know that for certain because they didn't have a chief risk officer from April or May of last year to January of this year. Silicon Valley Bank did not have a CRO, a chief risk officer. I mean, that alone, do you think, and not like we knew, there's thousands of public companies, we can't track them all, but shouldn't that have been kind of a little bit of a flag to somebody, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear there was a ton of red flags here that were not uh, followed up on by the management and by the examiners, the bank. You know, I know Barney Frank's in the headlines, you know, having covered him, I always thought he was a smart lawmaker and thoughtful on these issues. You want people who are experienced and thoughtful on your boards. I mean, I, I you know, I don't want to defend a revolving door necessarily, but there's, you know, that is, that is, you need people to, who know the, the laws and the rules to go work at some of these companies. Um, the Democratic Party has kind of moved away from that, um, where they, you know, they, the, a lot of the people getting these jobs tend not to come from industry. Yeah. You know, in the administration, you had a lot of people uh, like Mary Jo White, who you know were were in the in the law profession and then came into um, public service and then back, and they've really gotten away from that, um, which is an interesting trend. Yeah. Not really the question you asked, but it's um, all right. I, I listen. I've said it. We got to go, Andrew. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. There's only three ways to get rich quick in the United States: win the lottery, build a company, take it public, which takes a long time, or become an elected official and then retire. It doesn't matter what your party. You're probably going to get on some boards and make millions. Maybe we, we picked the wrong profession. Andrew, thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right. It is a story practically buried under today's banking mess. But President Biden made a huge decision around oil drilling in Alaska with possible implications for oil prices. We'll speak with Alaska Senator Dan Sullivan about it. Yeah, there's news outside of Silicon Valley Bank. Stick around. All right, welcome back. The banking crisis certainly dominating the headlines. We get it, but it is not the only piece of money-related news you need to know about. Today, President Biden approved a massive new oil project in Alaska. It's a ConocoPhillips field named Willow. It's an $8 billion or more project that could produce up to 180,000 barrels per day. It's a big win for ConocoPhillips. But obviously, environmental groups 
They are not happy. People versus fossil fuels, which represents a number of organizations, including Greenpeace, released a statement earlier today writing, quote, President Biden's presidential powers allow him to reject all new fossil fuel projects and declare a climate emergency that would ensure the survival of our communities and our planet. Instead, he's choosing to fatten the wallets of oil CEOs by expanding fossil fuel infrastructure that will drive us further into climate chaos. End quote. Joining us now is Republican Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. Dan, uh, Senator Sullivan, we chatted a couple days ago or last week in Houston. It's good to chat with you again. Obviously, yeah. the, the environmental side again, is, is going to be ticked off about this. There's been a lot of misinformation about it, what indigenous tribes may support it. Tell us what's really going on. Do, do many of the indigenous tribes that are, that are the ones that are going to be living around this facility when it's built, do they support it? Yes, they do, 100%. And it's uh, not 100% support, but the vast majority of Alaska Natives, all the major organizations, our Native organizations, are fully in support of the Willow Project. And Brian, as you and I have talked about, it's a frustration because you have these lower 48 groups that want to come up here, tell Alaskans how to live, but more importantly, you know, tell the Alaska Native people who have lived in Alaska for thousands and thousands of years What's supposedly good for them is condescending. You know, our native leaders have talked about the second wave of colonialism, eco-colonialism from these groups. So um, this was an important uh, decision for Alaska, for America, for our economy, for these Alaska native groups who are very strongly supportive. And as you and I have talked about, for national security for America. American energy is American power and our adversaries, whether it's Xi yeah. Jinping or Putin, fear American energy power. And this decision is going to help enhance that for our country. And, and the Bureau of Land Management also actually recommended going forward with this. But I know you're, you're pleased, Senator, and I'm sure you, you don't agree with the president on everything. Are you surprised this was approved? Well, look, as you know, we had a meeting, our congressional delegation, Senator Murkowski, Congresswoman Peltola and I had an over an hour long meeting with the president and his top advisors on this decision. And we made the case on issues like uh, the economy in Alaska and for America, the strong support from working Americans, including all the major unions in Alaska, all the building trades in America, the strong support from the indigenous people of our state and uh, said to the president, look, you guys talk a lot about racial justice, racial equity. Well, this is an uh, opportunity to prove it because the, the indigenous people of Alaska strongly support this. And of course, the national security challenges. But the one thing, Brian, that I think is important is the administration's own environmental impact statement talked about how this is one of the Alaska has the highest environmental standards in the world, lowest greenhouse gas emissions of any major project in the world. And if we need energy, which we do, and we're going to need energy for decades, why would you not want yep. to produce it in Alaska with our high standards as opposed to getting it from places like Venezuela, where yep. this administration lifted sanctions a couple months ago? On Venezuela, we're now importing 100,000 barrels a day from Venezuela, yeah, I, one of the dirtiest polluters 
in terms of their processes Senator, and a terrorist regime. We, we got to leave it there. Senator Sullivan, no relation, but good to see you twice in about a week. Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska, big win for them and for ConocoPhillips and for, for some of the peoples of Alaska. We'll be right back after this. All right, on a normal last call, by normal, it's like our fourth show, so there is no normal. We would do our nightcap. Well, this is an extraordinary time, so we're going to kind of end a little differently from, like I said, our long, illustrious history of four shows. All right, so a lot of these stocks, First Republic, Charles Schwab, Pacific West Bank, Western Alliance Bank Corp., your stocks have been hit hard. People have a lot of questions. Just a reminder, we've reached out to all of them. Some have responded. No, thank you. We get it. You're running a company. But we are here for you. You want to come on, have a conversation? We'd love to do it. All right, speaking of that, folks, we are out. We're going to see you at 7 o'clock Eastern, 4 Pacific again tomorrow night. Take care.